Word of God for our consideration this morning comes to us from Paul's letter to young pastor Titus, chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared, He saved us, not by righteous works that we did ourselves, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs in keeping with the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Even though our world, it appears today, can't agree on much of anything, I think there is virtually universal agreement that kindness and love are good things. They are virtues that are to be nurtured and encouraged and praised. We should teach them to our children and display them in our interactions with other people. That being said, there's something wrong with kindness and love. Two things, actually. The first is that they are invisible qualities, invisible virtues. You can't tell just by looking at someone whether they are kind or loving or not until they speak or act. And that's true of humans, obviously, but it's also true of God. We could have never known the heart of God unless and until he revealed himself to us. The second problem is that, as you well know, Our world has completely perverted the concepts of love and kindness. You know as well as I do that love and kindness are used as a justification for such evils in our world as euthanasia and abortion and same-sex marriage and, and more recently, uh, transgender policies. We're not immune from perverting or misusing love and kindness, are we? How often does it feel better to us to not discipline our children than love them the way they need to be loved with godly discipline, the application of law and gospel? How many times do our feelings of what we think our love and kindness lead us not to say something to a friend or family member who may be caught up in sin or unbelief? Maybe we think we're showing love and kindness with our words and actions. But aren't they all too frequently, those words and actions, aren't they all too frequently tainted with selfishness or a desire for recognition or a desire to be thanked? Since sin has so corrupted those concepts, those virtues of love and kindness, we have to go back to the source today to get a real lesson, to see what true love and kindness is. And today, Paul says that Epiphany reveals God's love and kindness for us and to us in three very concrete ways. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, the word epiphany means appearing or unveiling, uh, revealing. Uh, It comes from the Greek word epiphino. And Paul uses that same word in verse 4 of our text when he says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared. There's that word epiphino, epiphany. And this is profound. 
This is utterly profound. That when Jesus appeared in Bethlehem and when He appeared at the, at the Jordan River to be baptized, He was revealing something of God to us that we could have never discovered on our own. We never could have understood God's heart. How He really feels towards us. We can look at the, the universe around us, creation around us, and understand that God is, is wise and He is powerful but kind and loving, especially towards us. And just consider some of the pagan uh, religions that are out there. If you were to ask your average Muslim, well, what's your God like? They would answer just and holy, and, and I'm kind of afraid of Him because He's going to be my judge. Sadly, even many Christians, especially if you know Catholics, the primary view they have of God is that He is terrifying. He's a judge. He's angry at us all the time and we have to do something to appease Him. But Jesus appearing in this world proves otherwise. That God is full of love and kindness for us. It's kindness because Jesus didn't come for His own benefit. He didn't come to gain anything for Himself. Far from it. He came to give up everything in order to gain eternal life for us. And it's love. A revelation of God's love. And Paul uses an interesting word here for love. Uh, it comes from our word philanthropy. That's love for humans. Brotherly love like Philadelphia. But the, the fact that Paul uses this word means that Jesus didn't appear. Of all the, of all the various parts of creation that, that God obviously loves, the reason that Jesus came was not to save cats and dogs, but us, humans. Now, I know it's easy to take that for granted because we hear it every week. Every time we open our Bibles, every time we hear the absolution, every time we remember our baptism, and every time we receive the Lord's Supper, God's love and kindness for us is presented to us very tangibly, very visibly. But it's a great stark contrast with Paul's description of mankind in the verse just before our text. At one time, we ourselves were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by many kinds of evil desires and pleasures, living in malice and jealousy, being hated and hating one another. Paul's not describing the world out there. He's not describing terrorists or pedophiles or murderers or thieves. He's describing us. That's what we were. Foolish and disobedient. Not philanthropists, but hating one another. That's what we were. And, and if we're honest, that's what we too often still are. Foolish and disobedient, filled with malice, and hating one another. You see how remarkable and unexpected this appearing of Jesus as, as evidence of God's love and kindness are to us? Who would love us? Would you love someone unconditionally who every time you deal with them is filled with malice and hatred and disobedience? That's truly amazing about Christmas and Epiphany. Not, not, that, not that God is love. God is love. We know from Scripture God is love. But that He loved creatures like us. And that, that contrast between who we are by nature, and, and what God is and what He's done for us is what Paul focuses on in the next phrase. He says He saved us not by righteous works that we did ourselves, but because of His mercy. I think we sometimes get this mindset that, 
I may not be perfect, but, but I'm pretty good. Overall, I'm a pretty good person. So maybe God just have to, had to overlook some of those few mistakes that I've made in my life, those, those poor judgments, those times where I let slip something that I shouldn't have or I, I did something that I shouldn't have that God has forbidden. And that's not the case at all. Paul is very clear. God saved us not because of righteous works we had done, not because we hadn't done enough, but because there weren't any for us to offer to him. Isaiah says all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Hebrews says without faith it is impossible to please God. We had nothing to offer God. There was nothing in us that would make God love us. We were wretched, rotten, miserable creatures. That's important to keep in mind. That's, that's the point Paul is making here. What caused Jesus to come down from heaven was not what he saw in us, but what was in the heart of God. It wasn't that we deserved it, but because we didn't deserve it. It wasn't our righteous works because there aren't any. It was God's mercy. That's what lived in his heart. That's what pulsated for us fallen creatures. That's why he sent his son to this world. And you know what mercy is, right? Mercy is, is compassion in action for those in a helpless situation. And we were in a helpless situation. We, from the moment we were conceived, we were doomed to live a short, miserable life on this earth and then die forever in hell. That's what God saw when he looked at us. And yet in his mercy, he sent Jesus. That's why I think we need to get our minds away from thinking that a Christmas is just kind of this cute little heartwarming story about a baby surrounded by, by farm animals and praised by shepherds. We can't think of Epiphany or Jesus' baptism here in the Jordan River as just kind of interesting details of his life, but, but don't really mean anything for us. They mean everything. Jesus didn't come on a sightseeing trip. He didn't come as a tourist. He didn't come for a leisurely vacation. He came in the most dramatic and necessary rescue effort in human history. He came to save us from our sins. If we ever forget the, the miserable state in which God found us, then we will forget that. Then we will forget how unexpected and amazing it was that Jesus appeared to be our Savior. Perhaps that gives us a better appreciation for uh, the Christian church here, how, how the entire church here is framed around this rescue mission. Remember back to Advent. Advent was when we were preparing to receive the Christmas gift that God was preparing to give us. In the Christmas season, he, he gives it to us. He hands it to us. But what good is a Christmas gift if you can't open it? And that's, that's how I want you to think about the season of Epiphany, that we are opening it. We are unwrapping this gift that God has given to us, seeing and understanding and believing what he has done for us by sending us Jesus. After Epiphany, we will walk with Jesus once again down that dark and painful road to Calvary. We will see him groan his last as he gives up his spirit in our place on that cross. But then with tears still in our eyes, we will make our way three days later to that empty tomb where God provides verifiable proof, undeniable proof, 
that Jesus' empty tomb means that his love and kindness is for us. Miserable creatures like us, that's what appears here in Epiphany, God's love and his kindness towards us. And that's where our faith always begins. That's where our faith is is grounded. That's where all of our preaching and teaching, our, our confessions of faith, everything is grounded in the objective work of Christ, in his life and his death and his resurrection. But it, do, it never ends there, and that's what Paul is getting at next. He tells us, how do these facts actually impact you today? These facts that happened 2,000 years ago, how do they impact you this year in 2022? He says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You know what Paul is describing there, with words like pouring out, and washing and rebirth, of course, you know he's talking about baptism. He's saying in no uncertain terms that God saves miserable, wretched sinners like us through the sacrament of baptism, through washing with water and the Word. And along with that that washing, Paul says, comes rebirth and renewal. When you were born the first time, what did you inherit from your parents besides your hair color and your questionable sense of humor. You inherited sin and death. You inherited rebellious heart against God, and you inherited the the damnation that all sinners deserve. That's when you inherited, when you were first born. And so, in baptism, God came to you again and gave you a second birth, not, not in the image of your parents, but in the image of Jesus in the image of a holy God. In baptism, what that means is that all of the things that Jesus won for you by those objective facts of his life and his death and his resurrection are now your subjective possession. Now when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. And along with rebirth comes renewal. What is renewal? I was thinking about it this week. I think a good illustration is, you know how when some of your devices, they start malfunctioning, they don't work, maybe they get a virus or something like that, and you, you have to restore them to their default factory settings. I think that's a very good picture of what renewal is. That in baptism, God also resets us back to the default settings that God had first given Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That he restores in us, and it's not perfect, not this side of heaven. He restores in us righteousness and and restores our will so that we want to do what God wants. We don't want to be rebellious against Him. He actually enables us to once again be truly kind and loving to one another. Now you know that not everyone believes this about baptism. Maybe some of you in the past didn't believe that about baptism. Many And many Christians believe that baptism is something that we do for God. That it is a sign of our obedience, that it earns something from God, that it is an outward demonstration of an inward commitment to Christ. But I think all we need is this passage, this one phrase that proves that cannot be true. Listen again. Who is active here? Who's the one doing anything? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Who's active there? It's not us. We're being acted on. That comes out so clearly in infant baptism. Infants can't bring themselves up to the font. Infants can't baptize themselves. They can't even request it. They can't confess their faith. It is fully God. It is only God who is acting on them. And in that one verse, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in taking a wretched child of Satan and adopting them into the family of God, cleansing them from all their sin. It's another thing that appears at Epiphany. At our baptism, God loved us so much that He wouldn't, let, he wouldn't leave any of it up to us. Because if there was even a small part of our salvation that depended on our dedication or our commitment or our will or our righteous works, we would surely be lost. So God said, I'm going to take it out of your hands and put it in mine and baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What's the end goal of all this? Where is all this leading? Why did God go through such effort to not only send His Son to be born into this world, but also to, in time, adopt us through baptism. That's how Paul concludes. He says, So that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs in keeping with the hope of eternal life. Now, contrary to what many believe today and teach, Jesus did not come to make us happy and healthy and wealthy in this life. He didn't come to give us our best life now. He didn't just come to give us advice on how to have healthier marriages and families. He didn't come to fulfill all of our dreams. He came for one reason. You're here for one reason. Because only in Jesus can we be saved from an eternity of damnation in hell and given the inheritance of eternal life in heaven. It's interesting the the terminology there, heir and inheritance. Normally, an heir receives the inheritance when someone else dies. And that is true. Jesus earned our inheritance by his death. But we haven't received it in full yet, have we? In fact, we receive the inheritance of heaven when we die. That's what this life is about. A lot of people have that mixed up. A lot of people think that this life is all there is. They live by that silly mantra, YOLO, you only live once. And we see it in their behavior, right? I think, if anything, this pandemic has revealed just how many people think this life is all there is. How with the irrational and erratic and panicked behavior of so many people screaming at perfect strangers, doing things they would never normally do to their children, how it reveals that they have no hope of eternal life. They are desperately clinging to this life because they truly believe that's all there is. We can sometimes get sucked into that too, can't we? Thinking that the goal of this life is to have a long and pleasant retirement, that we can check all the the things off of our bucket lists. But the reality is that we should know better. We should know that this life is nothing more and nothing less than preparation for the life to come. That death is not the end for us. As we sang in the hymn, Death, you cannot end my gladness. I am baptized into Christ. That's the final thing that that is revealed here in Epiphany. God's love and kindness. 
in, in loving us so much that, that he didn't just want to give us an easier, more pleasant life in this world, but he wanted to take us out of this world to his side in heaven. That's the confidence that we have as we walk out those doors and go back to war with the devil and the world and the sinful nature, that the victory is already won. We're already victorious. That is, as Paul says, our hope. And hope is not like the way we use it in the world. It's not like saying, I hope it warms up later on this afternoon. It's not like saying, I hope a certain team wins this afternoon. It is a sure hope, a certain hope, because none of it is up to us. Because God sent His Son into this world to live and die and rise for us. Because God said, I'm not even leaving the second half up to you. I'm going to make you my child and give you all of those blessings totally passively in baptism. And one day he promises that he will take us out of this world to his side in heaven. That's God's love and kindness. That's true love and kindness. That's what appears at Epiphany. Amen.